Today on Onward to Victory, we continue with our mini-series started last year about Notre Dame's involvement in the American Civil War. For this fourth installment, we are going to focus on perhaps the most famous detective in American history, a Union espionage artist, and his incredibly intimate connection to Notre Dame. After all, who doesn't love a good 19th century spy thriller? Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. We're going back in time. This is Onward to Victory. fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I'm your host, Alex Painter. Boy, I have a good one for you all today for this 38th episode in show history. Now, for some newer listeners, you might be curious, what's going on? We're talking about the American Civil War. This is a football podcast, right? Well, let me bring you up to speed here really quickly on what's going down. So between January and February of 2020, I released a three-episode miniseries called Notre Dame in the Civil War. For what it's worth in show history, these would have constituted episodes 14 through 16, and since we were in the doldrums of the college football offseason, I deemed it a perfect time to maybe flex some creative muscles. Now, a year later, we find ourselves once again in the doldrums of the college football offseason. So let's return to the subject matter. So I guess why? Why are we doing this? I am a, charitably, a bit of a Civil War buff and kind of a a history nerd, and I'm very proud of this fact. But as we all know, the history of the University of Notre Dame is deeply entrenched with American history in its own right since the university was established in 1842. So naturally, there is quite a bit to dig into on campus while these seismically large historical events are taking place. So in the first episode of the miniseries called The Student-Turned-Soldier, we dug into the war experience of the teenager Frank Baldwin, an Elkhart, Indiana native who dropped out of Notre Dame as a student to join the Union Army. He fought in several major battles and was ultimately promoted to lieutenant at the tender age of 18 years old. So Lieutenant Baldwin, after being captured in battle in 1861, rejoining the army after he was released, wounded in the head at the Battle of Shiloh in April of 1862, was sadly killed at the Battle of Stones River on New Year's Eve 1862. So in short, it's a fantastic story, a sad one, but it's the story of just one young soldier's bravery and willingness to give his last full measure. The second episode, titled The Priest, was about two-time Notre Dame president Father William Corby's experience during the Civil War. While he was also on the front lines, he didn't have a musket on his shoulder. He didn't serve as a soldier, but as a chaplain. His assignment was with the famed Irish Brigade of the Union Army. And it was during the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863 that Father Corby 
just as the men and boys of the Irish Brigade were about to charge into battle, gave them a blessing, a moment forever immortalized by paintings, as well as, yeah, some famous statues. So that's right, fair catch Corby, if you will. And a credit to you all out there that this is, you know, despite being a football podcast, that episode about Father Corby is the second most listened to episode in show history. So I think that that's really neat. And Father Corby's story is a magnificent one. So the third and final installment last year, anyways, was called The General, about Union General William Tecumseh Sherman and his connection to Notre Dame. This included his children going to grammar school at the college when Notre Dame still had what was called a minimum program for young children. Sherman would later deliver a commencement address on campus shortly after the war had concluded. So I can't recommend these episodes enough or the book where the lion's share of the research came from. It's called Notre Dame in the Civil War, Marching Onward to Victory. I gotta love that title, but it was written in 2010 by a certain James M. Schmidt. Highly, highly recommend this book if you're a Civil War buff or interested in Notre Dame history or both. If one of these days I'd like to meet Mr. Schmidt, if you're listening to this and you know him, do your palace solid and give him my contact information. I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Alright, so before we jump in, this is just a pleasant reminder that this episode, and all the episodes for that matter, are brought to you by the Onward to Victory Consensus All-American Squad. These are the incredibly kind-hearted folks who donate their hard-earned funds to the show to keep it on the air, advertisement-free, and ever-growing. These blue and gold-blooded Irish fans include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans yourself, visit paypal.me slash onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. I'll announce your name like I just did for uh, the gentleman a moment ago and even send you some show swag to your mailbox. It takes quite some time, as you might imagine, to pull these episodes together, so I appreciate any support from you all. And that, of course, includes sharing, liking the posts on the Facebook page, telling your Notre Dame-loving friends and family about the show, or subscribing to the show. Don't forget to subscribe. Get all the the newly released episodes directly to your phone. And please, if you have an iPhone, just click that purple podcast icon, subscribe to the show, give five stars. It is so greatly appreciated. We have a real nice thing going here with listeners having checked in from nearly all 50 states. 46 from my last count, and roughly a dozen countries, all united in our affinity for the fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Okay, so back on topic. So from my vantage point, after covering those three prominent topics last year, I had but two directions I could go fairly easily. So first was the war experience of the Sisters of Holy Cross, who were, of course, joined at the hip of Notre Dame and President Edward Soren, himself a member of the Order of the Holy Cross, and that's the influence that still is on campus today. But by the way, if you'd like an episode about that, we can totally do it. Or, second, about a couple former Notre Dame pupils, a pair of brothers, in fact, who assisted their father, perhaps the most famous espionage artist private eye in the entire country, 
during the war. Yes, friends, the sons of master detective Alan Pinkerton were once Notre Dame students. So without further ado, I give you the adolescent operatives, the Pinkertons at Notre Dame, right after this. mid-19th century, there were no detectives in America as famous as Alan Pinkerton. In fact, the term private eye spun directly out of his agency. If you look at the early logo of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, it's actually on the episode placard if you're on Facebook. It has a large, unblinking eye with the accompanying catchphrase, we never sleep. Which, I have to admit, that's a pretty cool slogan for a detective agency. Anyway, the idea that Pinkerton's agency, with the famous eye logo, could be hired out for private security or investigative missions led to the nickname for detectives as Private Eyes. So how about that? Anyway, Alan Pinkerton immigrated to Chicago from Scotland in 1842. The very year, yes, Notre Dame students, that we were founded. And he was 23 years old. Uh, he actually did not immediately get into the private eye business. In fact, he initially found work as a cooper, or a barrel maker. Now, how could an immigrant cooper be exposed initially to undercover-type work? Well, quite simply, Pinkerton was a staunch abolitionist or someone who vehemently opposed the institution of slavery. And his barrel shop, in addition to his home, were used as stops on the famed Underground Railroad. It was only after he, by complete happenstance, busted up a counterfeit ring while looking for trees in the woods to make barrels out of that he fell into police and detective work. So again, kind of fell into it backwards. But in 1850, he formed the aforementioned Pinkerton National Detective Agency. So the agency rose to prominence by solving a number of train robberies in the early 1850s. It was, of course, at this time that railroad expansion was happening fairly rapidly out west, and those trains proved to be pretty easy pickings for bandits. And though this was before the Civil War, most are familiar with the fact that train robberies would not cease for decades and are commonly linked to gang activity uh, of the Wild West. So Pinkerton would gain notoriety as well for enlisting the help of a female detective named Kate Warren, who is widely regarded as the first female detective in country's history. At the end of the day, it can be safely assumed that Pinkerton probably acknowledged the fact that Kate could probably get into some places he simply could not. So just a few short years before his agency was founded, Alan and his wife, Joan, who was also Scottish and was a former singer, 
welcomed a couple sons into the world. William Allen was born in 1846, and his brother Robert Allen followed in 1848. So yes, for those keeping score at home, both sons featured their father's first name as their middle name. It's a lot of Allens, but Anyway, South Bend, Indiana is just about 100 miles outside of Chicago, a fact that many of us are keenly aware of, which is where the Pinkertons resided in the late 1850s. And Chicago has a long, even way back into the mid-19th century, been a strong draw from an enrollment standpoint for Notre Dame. Being a large urban center, Chicago attracted many Irish immigrants who were seeking work. And many of those same immigrants were geared towards sending their children to a Catholic school. So, enter Notre Dame. Interestingly enough, Allen was not a religious person. In fact, he identified as an atheist. But nonetheless, he decided to send William and Robert, then 14 and 12 years old respectively, to the University of Notre Dame in 1860. Now, some of you may be thinking that 14 and 12 was a bit young to be going off to college, right? Well, Notre Dame in the 19th century was structured far differently than it is today, as was alluded to earlier with the Minim program. But at the time, there was actually three divisions to the school. There was the senior level for kind of those traditional aged college students, 18 and, a, 18 and older. There was also a junior level for students ages 12 to 17, kind of like a high school. And then finally, the aforementioned minimum level for students 12 and under. So why would the school do this? Well, in the early days of the college, enrollment was kind of a fairly consistent battle and trying to get students to come to the school. So Father Soren and, and company had their share of tough times, but the idea behind the multi-level approach was, of course, to generate additional revenue as well as create something of an enrollment funnel to keep students at the school through college. So the Pinkerton boys enrolled in the junior department. So of note, according to the school's archives, total enrollment for Notre Dame during the 1860-1861 school year was 203. At the time, nearly 80% of the student body was from the Midwest, 7% from New England, and, interestingly enough, 6% were from the soon-to-be Confederate states. So even though the enrollment was fairly small, it still had a fairly diverse student body. The younger of the two brothers, Robert, was particularly well-liked during their tenure at Notre Dame. One of the Holy Cross brothers remarked that he was, quote, the best-natured boy in the play yard, end quote. So in November of 1860, just a few months after the Pinkerton boys arrived on campus, a gentleman from Illinois by the name of Abraham Lincoln was elected as the 16th president of the United States. What the Pinkerton boys probably could not comprehend at the time was the massive fallout from the election of 1860. By February 1, 1861, seven states had seceded from the United States to form the Confederate States of America. Four more would actually follow. Alan Pinkerton himself would cement his national fame 
while his sons were at Notre Dame by allegedly foiling an assassination attempt on President-elect Lincoln while he was en route to Washington, D.C. from his home in Springfield, Illinois, to take the office of the presidency. The elder Pinkerton had rerouted Lincoln's train in Baltimore, Maryland, as a bit of a subterfuge, if you will, to throw off the alleged would-be assassins. And that is an incredibly quick recount of that whole event. If you're interested in learning more about that, there's a lot written out there about it. But anywho, on April 12, 1861, the Civil War formally started when Confederate artillery bombarded Union-held Fort Sumter in the Charleston, South Carolina Harbor. The Civil War, destined to be the bloodiest war in American history, in fact costlier in terms of human life, American human life, that is, than nearly every other conflict combined in United States history had officially begun. Though very few people predicted the true cost, the final cost of this war from the onset, in fact, quite the opposite. Something like war fever swept through both the North and the South, where the romantic notions of combat seized the public sentiment and imagination. And frankly, people couldn't get to war fast enough and were literally sprinting to their local recruiting stations because they didn't want to miss out on it or be accused of cowardice for not signing up. To reinforce this notion, nearly all of the 75,000 volunteers called by now President Lincoln to put down the Southern Rebellion signed 90-day enlistment papers. 90 days, three months. The prevailing notion held by the vast majority of the country was that there would be one grand battle, one clear victor, and the war would be over by the end of the summer 1861. At the very latest, perhaps Christmas 1861. So that war fever reached, well, a fever pitch on Notre Dame's campus as well. The spirit was fueled by a Notre Dame student named William Lynch, who was the commander of Notre Dame's Continental Cadets. With much of the citizenry of South Bend packed into the St. Joseph Courthouse to ponder their next move after Sumter, Lynch, quote, stood up, tall, soldierly. His Irish eyes were glittering, his face pale. The vibrant ring of the first sentence he rattled out above the heads of the good citizens made them catch their breath. In five minutes, they were frantic. And when the boy told them that he was going to the front to shed the last drop of his blood if needed for the Union, the audience leapt to its feet. Cheer after cheer rang out wildly. End quote. And, alas, Notre Dame readied for war. University president and founder Father Edward Soren appreciated his students' zeal for the cause of patriotism and the Union. He did consent, though, that he could not allow students under the age of 21 to enlist without their parents' permission. This, of course, included the Pinkerton boys, William and Robert. So William, the older of the two, who had turned 15 just a few days before the attack on Fort Sumter, was very eager to enlist in the Union Army, and he was permitted to join his father for the cause of the Union. More on that here in just a second. 
But Robert, who wouldn't turn 13 for several months, so he was still a preteen, was to stay at Notre Dame to further his studies. President Lincoln, as most of us are aware, was himself a longtime Illinois resident, so he and Pinkerton would have had that in common. But he, of course, would have also been very gracious of Pinkerton's agency in helping foil the alleged assassination attempt. So Lincoln actually hired Pinkerton for a myriad of tasks during the war. This included serving as Lincoln's private security detail, kind of a de facto pre-secret service, if you will, but also included spying, scouting, and reconnaissance. Now, as far as his success at this, his track record is somewhat varied throughout the war. But it was Alan Pinkerton himself who broke up a circle of rebel spies that were commandeered by the cunning Southern sympathizer, Rose Greenhow. So William Pinkerton went to work, often embarking on dangerous missions. Again, just as a teenager who was technically not even old enough to shoulder a musket in the Union Army, but he would often escort agents behind Confederate lines. I suppose who would be less suspected as an enemy agent than a child? I suppose the same could be said for women such as Kate Warren or Rose Greenhow. Warren, of course, I would be remiss not to mention, did stay in the employ of the Pinkerton Agency. But William also undertook another incredibly dangerous task of delivering dispatches, again, often crossing enemy lines. While simply scouting was dangerous enough, being caught with enemy correspondence could put one in serious jeopardy. And really, the reason is twofold. So for one, if you're caught with, say, you know, the Union Army intelligence or troop movements, that, of course, compromises the safety of the entire army. But however, if you're behind enemy lines and you are caught with enemy correspondence, particularly during this time, you might be suspected as a spy. So I'm not sure exactly what the penalty would be for a teenager, but as I'm sure most of you are aware, spies were routinely executed by hanging. This was a fairly common occurrence during the 18th and 19th centuries, and even, of course, into the 20th century. So William would have shown a lot of the same guile and bravery and guts and grittiness that his father would have shown, and a lot of that craftiness. He had to have been, and he was just a child. Keep this in mind. Well, each child, he grew up fairly quickly, though, doing this kind of work. But not only did he do these activities, but he also latched on with the operations of a certain professor, Thaddeus Lowe, who served as the chief aeronaut of the Union Army Balloon Corps. So yes, you might be aware of this, but the Union Army actually utilized Lowe's hot air balloons for reconnaissance efforts and kind of sizing up Confederate strength and troop positions. I'm not sure how many of you are thrill seekers. I personally am not, but I imagine jumping in a hot air balloon in the mid-19th century, again, took some serious courage, uh, especially while you were a pretty obvious target while floating slowly around in the sky. 
And even if muskets and artillery of the day were hard-pressed to reach that high, it still had to have been pretty jarring. So William, while serving with the Union Army, was actually wounded in the leg by an exploding artillery shell at the Battle of Antietam on September 17, 1862. Now that was the costliest single day during the American Civil War. The Battle of Antietam was a single-day battle. Now, the as far as human life is concerned, the bloodiest battle, of course, belongs, that distinction belongs to Gettysburg, but Antietam was the bloodiest single day. And uh, William Pinkerton was, in fact, wounded during that fight. But he would eventually recover, and he would serve the Secret Service Division for the rest of the war. And in 1863, younger brother Robert joined them and performed similar tasks. After the war ended in 1865, the younger Pinkertons remained with their father in the family business, and they even took it over in 1884 when Allen passed away. They would ultimately solve many cases over the decades and pursue many bad guys, probably most famously they went to war with the Jesse James gang. But despite living a very unusual life with, at the time, a very unusual profession, the Pinkerton boys were incredibly fond of their time spent at Notre Dame and recalled the period with affection. In a February 19, 1898 issue of the school newspaper, The Scholastic, William actually wrote, quote, I hope sometime to have the pleasure of going to Notre Dame with my brother and meeting some of our old-time acquaintances there. As while 40 years have elapsed since we left Notre Dame, I have none but the kindliest remembrances for the dear old place and everyone connected with it." End quote. He also followed up with his sympathies for the entire community over the death of former Notre Dame president and chaplain of the famed Irish Brigade, Father William Corby. Corby, an absolute staple at Notre Dame, had passed away less than two months earlier. And that was the adolescent operatives, the Pinkertons and Notre Dame. And we will be right back. hate to double down on my nerdiness, but when it comes to my favorite Civil War songs, that one you just heard, which is called Weeping Sad and Lonely, When This Cruel War Is Over, can be found pretty much anywhere, but I just, I'm a big fan of it. But but I do hope you enjoyed that, and I just would like to finish the Civil War aspect of this episode off with a little bit of a reading from a book I'm currently going through called This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, written by Drew Gilpin Faust. And during the first part of the miniseries, the first three episodes, oftentimes I commented on just the scope of the loss endured by the United States 
during the war, and it ended up being 2% of the population was killed in the war. If you were to scale that to modern times, that would be a war that would claim 6 million people in the modern United States, and that is absolutely astonishing. But something that Faust wrote that I think is just really interesting was, quote, the Civil War matters to us today because it ended slavery and helped to define the meanings of freedom, citizenship, and equality. It established a newly centralized nation-state and launched it on a trajectory of economic expansion and world influence. But for those Americans who lived in and through the Civil War, the texture of the experience, its warp and woof, was the presence of death. At war's end, this shared suffering would override persisting differences about the meaning of race, citizenship, and nationhood to establish sacrifice and its memorialization as the ground on which North and South would ultimately reunite. So again, that's from the preface, actually, of This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, written by Drew Gilpin Faust. I, I'm still working through this, but it has been a very, very fascinating read about the more the psychological aspect of, of loss during the American Civil War, and I can't recommend it enough. So anyways, I do hope you enjoyed that episode, the 38th in show history. And so what is coming down the pike? So I have a special February episode planned about a trailblazer in Notre Dame football history and someone who I don't think gets near enough publicity for what he was able to accomplish while he was at the school in the football program. So that will be the next episode. So yes, what I guess I'm telling you is the next episode will be very football centric, but if you have a show idea, we are, as I mentioned earlier, in the doldrums of the college football offseason. Spring ball will start up. We'll have a lot more to talk about the current Notre Dame, uh, the current edition of Notre Dame here very, very soon, and all of that in the draft. We'll see where our guys go in the draft. Uh, so we'll have plenty to talk about for the football field. But again, we are kind of in that no man's land where we can kind of, again, flex some creative muscles. So if you have something, a show idea or something you'd like me to dig into, I'm happy to take any show ideas. You can send them to the email address at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. You can send it to the show by Facebook Messenger. So feel free if you are on the Facebook persuasion, and I know a number of you aren't, and that's perfectly fine. You can go visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash victory. And that will kind of, that's kind of show headquarters, if you will. That's where a lot of the updates are funneled through. So if you're on Facebook and you're not following the show, please do. But again, next episode will be about a trailblazer in Notre Dame football history. And again, it's going to be released in February. So it'll be very, very appropriate for what February is known for celebrating. And then I kind of teased it during a video earlier about doing an episode where we tackle if the academic standards at Notre Dame hurt, hinder, or help the recruitment efforts and maybe just as importantly, the retention efforts of student athletes, in particular, of course, football players. It's something that gets waved around a lot as a reason why Notre Dame just can't seem to beat Clemson and Ohio State. So, do a little bit of digging, see if we can make it as scientific as possible. So I've been working on that episode as well. So uh, looking forward to releasing those two here in the next month. But I do appreciate you listening on this one. 
And man, I can't believe I haven't talked about it yet. Go back and listen to episode 37 about my guy, Al Feeney. I call him the everywhere man. Uh, It's about a a guy who I think was pretty much everywhere. Go back and listen to it. Seriously, he was a a teammate of Knut Rockne while he was a a player. But then he just kind of had this really interesting trajectory and kind of life path. And I don't want to spoil the ending, but the ending absolutely threw me. I could not believe it. So go back, um, you know, if you're in your phone, go back and listen to episode 37 after you listen to this one. It's a dandy. And don't forget, if you found this episode really interesting and you just want to hear the previous three installments, it's episodes 14 through 16, Notre Dame and the Civil War parts 1, 2, and 3. Don't hesitate to go back and listen to that. So a special thank you to Joseph Rakish, who his song, Knut Rockney, serves as the show's theme song. That was the song you heard at the very beginning of the show. Very great. Joe very graciously allows the show to use it. So we thank you very, very much for that. A special thank you once again to our consensus All-Americans. That is Michael, Brad, and Weston. Appreciate you so much, fellas. And again, thank you so much for your support of the show. Thank you for listening. And I do hope that you enjoyed this offering, part four of the Notre Dame in the Civil War about the Pinkerton brothers. And with that, I reckon it's time for me to sign off. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go. Irish. <laughs> <laughs>